Welcome to the fifth episode of the Youth Mental Health and Addictions Treatment Network podcast. This is a collaborative project between the IWK Health Center in Halifax and Capitalize for Kids to improve health outcomes for children and families across Canada. Each month, we host a webinar featuring a high-priority topic in child and adolescent mental health and addiction. Experts will share best practices and answer questions from clinicians across Nova Scotia. The following show is an edited archive of a webinar session. Our topic for this episode is about working with trans and gender diverse youth. We'll hear from Dr. Suzanne Zink from the IWK Health Center, who will discuss the basics of the five elements of care, and we'll use a case study to illustrate the concepts discussed. It's important to note that practices discussed in this podcast are sensitive and only intended for qualified and trained mental health professionals. This is not intended for parents or caregivers who do not provide professional mental health services. Enjoy the podcast. I'm Dr. Sue Zink at the IWK as a child psychiatrist and assistant professor of psychiatry at Dalhousie, uh, presenting today on the five elements of care for gender dysphoric, gender non-binary, and transgender youth. And this is a Capitalized for Kids initiative with the Mental Health and Addictions Program. Today we're going to uh, do a brief case presentation uh, together. I will uh, outline one and then you'll review the following uh, objectives we'll meet in the talk. So the diagnostic criteria and some typical presentations of gender dysphoria at different ages, the five elements of clinical work and the health impact of access to care at appropriate times, the role of the mental health and primary care clinicians in assessment and ongoing care, and I'll finish with some uh, clinical practice guidelines, clinical workbooks and other resources that you can use in your work. Gender dysphoria in children is no longer a subspecialty issue. It is most definitely in the mainstream. And this is not just reflected in popular literature, but also in uh, emerging literature in the medical and psychological and social and education fields. This is a new story, uh, new story from the uh, Journal of American Medical Association. In the last seven months, there have been uh, cover stories on transgender care on the Canadian Medical Association Journal. The, the Lancet, the British Medical Journal, has run uh, articles uh, for a majority of an issue, and the American Family Physician Journal has also had an entire issue devoted to this this year. So more and more in medical schools and training programs for mental health clinicians, this is going to become uh, a core competency. And of course, we all have our roles in uh, trans health care. And uh, hopefully, after today, you'll be able to understand how, where in your practice you can come in and uh, assist youth. There is also specialty training available in this for those who want to go uh, deeper. So I'm just going to tell you a bit about uh, Cassie. So Cassie. Uh, is a 15-year-old who was born male-bodied, who uh, was referred to their family physician um, by uh, a parent who was concerned about Cassie's mood. And then the family physician referred uh, Cassie to the community mental health clinic with the following information. Please see Joe. He has been feeling like he may be a girl and wants to receive hormone treatment. He goes by Cassie and his friends call him this also. Please contact the youth by the school guidance counselor as he does not want uh, grandparents with whom he's living to know about the appointment. So Cassie was contacted by the clinic to arrange an appointment. And at a telephone intake, 
Cassie states that uh, she prefers to use the name Cassie and female pronouns. This preference is noted on her referral package for her intake appointment. On the day of the assessment, uh, the mental health clinician uh, informs uh, his administrative staff of Cassie's uh, preferred name and pronouns and that they may be different on, than those on file from the legal name uh, and they use these at the registration. And in addition, uh, they make a note to use this on any future correspondence. The preference uh, for no uh, parent contact is also noted on the file from the intake. Cassie actually comes to the appointment with her maternal grandmother. And uh, Cassie's the only child, uh, born male-bodied, the eldest with a younger sister, age 12. She lives in a small town in rural Nova Scotia, about four hours away from the tertiary care center and almost a half hour drive from the nearest CMHC. Her parents both living at home, but have been emotionally separated and sleep in separate rooms, but co-parent reasonably well. And Cassie has been living with her grandmother uh, next door um, just for a few weeks. Cassie and her sister live fairly independently as uh, both parents work and their maternal grandmother often is the caregiver after school and helps with meals. Cassie asked to meet alone uh, with the mental health clinician. Um, she tells how she recalls be she, that she began to feel different uh, from others at the age of five. She says, I just felt different but I thought every kid did sometimes. She reports her earliest memory of gender was feeling upset at being asked to wear a suit to church when she would go with her mother. I don't like dressing up. Cassie also liked to play with toys that others considered girl toys, like Barbie dolls and Winx fairy dolls. Um, but this was considered um, reasonably okay in the house, but she was always very excited when she visited her cousins who had these toys. She recalls they had the best toys. I could play with them without anyone anybody commenting. And except when she was asked to dress up, Cassie tolerated the expectations made uh, of her uh, when she was at home living as a young boy. At age 11, Cassie recalls feeling quite unhappy. Everyone was separating and doing their own thing, she said. It seemed all of a sudden that everyone wanted to be with just the boys and were talking about girls or video games or sports. And she said she had few female friends, including a cousin who was uh, in their grade, but felt left out and awkward because their cousin started experimenting with makeup and talking about boys. I felt like I had to choose, but I didn't know where I fit. She also began to realize that she was uncomfortable with uh, some of the changes of puberty. She began to have spontaneous erections, uh, and when they started happening at school, which is a common occurrence, uh, it was particularly distressing. She said, I thought I was gay because I would get them sometimes when I was crushing on a teacher who's a man. And she began to wish, uh, then going by male pronouns, that she had no uh, penis at all and recalls feeling startled uh, about being jealous when she overheard uh, mother talking to her aunt, a female cousin, starting their menstrual period. And she said, I realized I wish I had that. All the girls complain about it, but this is the only... Uh, thing that I'm not like a woman and that I wish I had this all the time. In grade 8, during the sexual education curriculum, Cassie learned about transgender identities and gender uh, dysphoria, which was taught in a brief section of a larger course. She said, it was like a light went on and I didn't even know there was a name for what I was feeling. So what is gender dysphoria? Well, Cassie's 
um, story is fairly typical, but it is um, different for every person. It's very important to uh, reflect on that when you're listening to a youth story. There's no one way to present with gender dysphoria. This is not a clinical document, but it's a useful little guide um, when explaining uh, gender identity and the difference between gender identity and sexual orientation or attraction, as well as biological sex. For the simplicity of uh, things, attraction and identity are actually put in different places, but we do know that um, love and attraction also live in the brain. But on this gingerbread cookie, genderbread person, identity lives in the brain, not in the genitals, where biological sex is often assigned uh, at birth. Unless someone has um, some type of ambiguous genitalia, usually that's how sex is determined, and we assume uh, that gender is going to follow from that, simply because most of the time it does. But there is another way um, for gender identity to express, and it can be different from the assigned sex at birth. I will not go into all of the biology around this for the interest of time, but this is not simply um, a, a theory or an idea. There um, is considerable evidence for this. For the purposes of simplicity, because um, in the not-so-distant past, many people assumed that sexual orientation and gender identity were on the same continuum and conflated them, you can have any sexual orientation and any gender identity in combination. And it's really important um, to be respectful of that. So if someone identifies, uh, as Cassie does, as male and is attracted to other boys, that is not a heterosexual girl. That is um, someone who might be same-sex attracted boy. So may or may not call themselves gay or bisexual or pansexual. One other thing to point out here is that these are all on a spectrum. So over uh, on the uh, right-hand side, you'll see that there are arrows for each of these terms. That's because um, there are a variety of different ways of expressing it. Some people even have a sexual orientation of being asexual in that they're not interested in sex at all, but they are interested in relationships, for example. The dotted line labeled expression on the genderbred person is basically how we show our gender to the world, how we perform gender by what we wear, uh, how we do our hair, how we move and talk. It's basically, if you think of it as the frosting on the gingerbread cookie, uh, it can change, and then what we present to the world looks different. So there's varying terms. When you're working with a youth, you should use the one the youth uses, because some people do not identify as transgender, even though they may have a gender identity different from the one assigned at birth. And very important to know that also that trans is actually an adjective. Uh, transgender folks don't even get the dash that we normally associate it with an adjective for gender. They usually get a term swished together called transgender. It is accepted, but it is important to know that this language shapes the way we see gender. Folks whose gender X align throughout their development are considered cisgender. That's what cis means. It's an adjective that means two things aligned on the same side. Transgender means two things aligned on different sides. That's all it is. But most of us think of being transgender as, a, as an abnormal variant of gender, when in reality, gender develops the same in both sets of people. But what happens is people's uh, identity varies from what we expect from the biological um, assigned sex. Transgendered is a term that's often still used in the UK. It's considered pejorative in North America. Transsexual is an older term uh, and still uh, controversial in some places. 
you will see variations, transgender or trans or trans. The asterisk is used to in indicate that people have a transmasculine, transfeminine identity, and it's also um, a way of signaling recognition of gender fluid identities as well in one small uh, term, but there will be multiple terms. When I first started this work in 2006, F to M and M to F were very common terms that you would find on a medical chart or a referral letter to a community mental health clinic. Now, uh, much less common, people will just talk about someone's identity as it is or use the word transgender, girl, boy, male, female. Much more commonly used now, people are identifying themselves as assigned or assigned male at birth, which is what AFAB and AMAB stand for. It's important to know that these are not just terms that refer to trans folks, it also uh, refers to anyone. So uh, if someone identifies as a cisgender female, which um, I do, for example, I was assigned female at birth as well. So that's important to know. A lot of times people do not want to be known by their terminology simply because they just want to be who they are. And this is a quote from a patient to both clinics at the IWK, Endo and Mental Health. I'm just Nick the guy, not Nick the trans guy. Really important to know that minority stress can emerge from how these labels are used. One of the things that uh, is important to understand too is that it's not simply male or female. Uh, a lot of people know now that gender is fluid and it can be experienced as fluid. Uh, this can be a difficult concept for people who are comfortable in one end of the spectrum uh, more than the other, but really and truly this is a thing and it's very important to know that it's not a sign of confusion or ambivalence for more people. Gender variance really describes a subjective other's view of behavior. So when we talk about a child with gender variant behavior, what we usually mean is they're not doing what others or general uh, folks would expect them to do. So really it's a description of someone else's view of gender and how it's deviated from. However, it does have value in helping uh, to pretend potentially identify someone who may need further support. Um, but in the end, gender variant behavior does not necessarily indicate that the child uh, is or will stay uh, transgender. Um, but for the most part, it, it is something that might need support and education for the family. And then um, time will tell and the youth will be able to express what's uh, needed for them and what's most important for them. For those who do have um, a disorder of sexual development, and there are dozens of different combinations of hormonal, uh, endo which is endocrinological, biological, and genetic uh, syndromes that can lead to a disorder of sexual de development that shows up either through hormone tests, genetic tests, or visible anatomically, they may not identify as trans, but they do often have gender or dysphoria to their body, and they may have a preferred name or pronoun that's different than the one that they've been assigned at birth. It's also important to understand that dysphoria is um, something that exists on a spectrum and it comes and goes. The common body concerns of childhood and adolescence are still present and at times more prominent. And dysphoria is not just a transgender issue. We all can experience discomfort with our bodies at different times. We will all remember, particularly adolescence or times of transition um, for health, that our bodies and our expression in dress or the expectation of uh, others and our reactions to this um, vary and it can affect our mood and our self-esteem. This is a, quite different, so important that you can use that as a jumping off point for empathy, but unless you've experienced this, um, it could be very difficult to um, 
you know, feel you've had an equivalent experience, which is why first voice is so important. And uh, listening to your patients and their families. It's not just about negative feelings. The way some people know, uh, in fact, this is a very common experience you'll hear described, is gender euphoria. So it's the euphoria of being recognized as male. So uh, Cassie uh, describes being uh, happy later on after transition of being recognized in the grocery store as male. Overhearing someone say, can I help you, sir, uh, is very uh, helpful to someone who's transitioning or even just socially uh, presenting themselves authentically. That's uh, a rush of feeling that helps them know that this is comfortable for them. And it's just as valid as the not right feeling. Really important to know that we're going to look at the DSM criteria here, and I'm just going to go back, that the relationships with DSM-5 and the clinical practice guidelines are very important. We need to use these as our guide, um, but we also need to understand details and variations to give good care. Uh, there's a common misconception that you have to have a presentation of gender variance uh, and even uh, firm gender identity as male, female, or other than your assigned sex at birth in early childhood in order for it to be truly a transgender identity. That's a myth. The reality is that many people do report a feeling of difference, um, but quite a few people, in fact, um, the majority in older studies were presenting uh, in and around puberty. DSM-5 and to an extent any clinical practice guideline or even the standards of care from WPATH can, if misunderstood, um, pathologize normal experiences. So that's why I was talking about gender um, identity formation as being uh, the same for both groups of people who identify as cisgender or transgender or gender fluid. Simply because um, while it's a difference, it is not a sign of a pathological process. It's kind of deviating from the norm. WPATH Standards of Care version 8 is coming out soon. We're currently using 7, and um, it's important to know it's moving toward an informed consent model, so understanding um, how to make decisions collaboratively with patients. And so the more you understand about how people present, the better you can um, use these guidelines. Um, DSM-5 still includes uh, gender dysphoria as a disorder um, because it certainly can, uh, particularly with societal um, minority stress, lead to mental health difficulties. But it's also included because in some places they would not be able to access care unless they had a diagnosis. So that's another uh, consideration uh, for people around the world who don't have our uh, system of practice. So quickly, uh, gender dysphoria in children, according to the DSM-5, um, starts with a marked incongruence between one's experienced expressed gender and assigned gender of at least six months duration, as manifested by at least six of the following criteria, one of which must be this criterion A1. That is a strong desire to be of the other gender or an insistence that one is the other gender or some alternative gender different from one's assigned gender. And the following criteria, um, and there's seven, they are actually more behavioral than the adult and adolescent uh, criteria. So there is actually a separate diagnostic criteria for adolescents and adults um, because it does recognize that children express gender often through behavior um, or uh, play. What's important to know is that if we just look through them, one of them, uh, second from the bottom, is a strong dislike of one's sexual anatomy. Well, this isn't always the case, so it's important to know if that's not there, 
that that isn't necessarily a sign the child does not have gender dysphoria. Some children grow up enjoying the bodies they're in. It's only when puberty is approaching or they contemplate puberty that they start to realize that you know, their body and their gender identity are different. It's not that they're in denial or that they don't recognize it, but often children who are accepted in their identity allowed to explore their variant interests may not have any body dysphoria until later. And that's often a time um, also uh, when distress can increase to the point where people will seek services or come to understand that this is a persistent identity for them. It's not simply um, only about their preferences and interests. Gender dysphoria in adolescents and adults. Um, again, includes a marked incongruence between one's experience expressed gender and assigned gender of at least six months duration is manifested by two of the following. And, and these criteria move more into the psychological realm. So talking um, about their experience and their preferences. Um, not, again, you do not have to have all of these, and yet there are criteria to follow. You only need two. And the reasons uh, for that are understanding of the persistence of this. So we'll talk about that. So in order to understand what gender variant behavior is and how it differs from gender uh, dysphoria that may persist into a transgender or gender fluid identity, you need to look for insistent, consistent, and persistent of the characteristics that you saw on the, the previous two slides and also just listening to the stories and the variations they can present because um, how gender dysphoria presents in people is as individual as the folks themselves. For those who are on the line, many of you are mental health clinicians and primary care clinicians who know that depression, uh, yes, you can diagnose it with the DSM-5 criteria, but it looks different in every single person because they're individuals. And the same is true for this. So although we don't really know how many um, transgender uh, people are identifying in communities, there are recent studies that suggest it's uh, as high as 0.5 to 1.3%. Uh, and it's markedly higher than the prevalence race, rates um, based on clinic referred samples of adults. So children and adolescents um, are recognizing um, this earlier and therefore you know, the prevalence rates are far, far higher um, than we originally thought. Um, I seem to recall, yes, it was about 1 in 45,000 was what it was considered um, for trans folks uh, in Nova Scotia and extrapolating from Dutch data. As we see, we were, uh, as a field, massively underestimating this. One of the other things to know is that if someone presents early on, so very early uh, insistence in a gender uh, identity such as uh, is expressed in criteria A1 here in gender dysphoria in children, um, and the number of gender variant interests they have, they are more likely to persist. We cannot uh, say for sure, but it is um, among that group of people more likely. And they may have a different set of needs because they may wish to engage in social transition, uh, expressing their gender through name pronouns or dress uh, earlier. And uh, it's important to let people know, however, um, that uh, more kids uh, who are gender variant as children often grow up to have um, same-sex attractions more uh, or identify as gay, lesbian, or bi, or pan. But um, the criteria that are, are quoted uh, for uh, this are, and the uh, statistics um, have been replicated in three studies, particularly uh, around the world. However, there is a problem with these studies in that they define um, gender dysphoria as 
no longer being present, even by counting people who no longer return to the clinic. So that's a sampling um, bias that is problematic because some people might not return to the clinic for um, other reasons than that their gender identity is no longer present or dysphoric for them and they're seeking help for it. The other concern is that in some places the diagnosis may have been conflated with gender variant behavior, which is not the same. So if you have a child um, who has all of the criteria here in black, but they don't have the first criterion, then they actually don't have gender dysphoria. What they have is some features of it and um, maybe only gender variant behavior. And so we can't expect that those kids will necessarily become uh, you know, transgender or gender fluid uh, or gender queer and seeking services. Again, studies have shown the intensity of the cross-gender interests can predict persistence. So a word about cause, we don't know. But what's really important to know is it's not and needs to be distinguished from psychosis, OCD, autism, personality disorder. If there are these comorbid uh, conditions, then it can certainly um, be challenging, but it's not impossible if you know what to listen for. Um, it tends to be quite consistent in terms of its presentation, even uh, when people are experiencing seeing distress or turbulence from uh, other conditions that might or might not be present. We do believe it's a neuroendocrine uh, presentation that gender dysphoria is actually a form of uh, intersexual disorder of sexual development um, that affects the brain's understanding of uh, the gender. So what does this mean? It's a bit vague, but <laughs> what it means is that we learn uh, what gender we are by, by how um, our hormones signal to our neurons. And in some people, they signal differently. Um, there are some genes that have been identified. This is uh, briefly a quote from a study published this year on gender of clinical endocrinology and metabolism that they have um, found several genes uh, in uh, trans women with uh, involvement in the sex hormone signaling uh, pathways. And all this to say is that it's complex, but most certainly um, a phenomenon that we don't have to worry is um, purely psychological in origin. And even if it were, we would need to know how to support and treat people. What does it look like in children? Well, children can present in different ways, um, and it's not just toys. Nowadays, a lot of kids spend time online, so you will hear stories of kids um, choosing avatars that fit their gender identity or even just being interested in it and not, not knowing that they're choosing consciously but feeling much more comfortable or even happy when they're um, playing that uh, avatar in a game. They may always, uh, in old-fashioned games, choose to be a certain gender role, in this case the daddy or the king. Um, sometimes rough and tumble play is not always there, but it is more common uh, for uh, people who identify as trans men to recall having been more physically active and in, uh, involved in that kind of play when they were younger. Um, youth, as I said already, like the expression they have in their bodies. Um, and that, you know, leads us to the question we should imagine is what happens when children are encouraged to express themselves authentically and dress and play as they like without any assumptions about outcome. Again, um, there are many things that we need to help youth with. What they say is that dysphoria can be fluctuating, multifaceted, they can experience physical problems from their gender expression. A lot of youth bind uh, their breasts if they're experiencing uh, gender dysphoria to their feminine characteristics. That can impair breathing. Um, 
trans girls uh, may uh, tuck their penis and scrotum behind using a gaff, which is basically a, a garment that's like a tight pair of underwear or bathing suit. Uh, and that can cause problems if not done correctly. Um, and so these are uh, things that people are willing to do because it needs uh, to be done for them to feel comfortable in how they express themselves. And they also, of course, experience a great deal of minority stress from problems of daily living, such as working out school and uh, relationships, uh, coming in before coming out. In this case, this is an, a phenomenon where people are kind of trying to understand where they fit. And sometimes people will, will um, hyper express the gender assigned at birth um, before they discover that this is uncomfortable for them to the point that they will actually transition uh, socially, dress differently. Um, that can be confusing to people around them, but for them, it's a very natural process of exploring identity. Um, but it can create stress because people can be um, looking and expecting them to behave a certain way when in reality they're exploring. They need to hear their correct name and pronouns and it can be a challenge for families because they're used to calling someone their daughter or their son and uh, transitioning that to child uh, or using the other term can be um, a process. Identification documents, gendered environments, all of this can contribute and in the extremes youth are um, rubbing up against people's attitudes and can experience higher rates of ostracism and even violence. And so adjustment disorders are very common and we do need to distinguish between that and uh, gender dysphoria. So when you are seeing someone with gender dysphoria who's having significant anxiety or mood problems, you want to consider the impact of those things before you might give a separate diagnosis. So in late adolescence, there's quite a bit of change for many. And so at that time of transition, um, a lot of people are um, experiencing uh, decisions they've never had to make before. And so it's really important to recognize that that's a time when people are um, expressing their identity more socially in some situations. Others have already transitioned. So it's not unusual for university clinics to um, see youth, um, particularly from uh, smaller towns or families where they could not express this coming out at that age. It's also a time where they're at higher risk of sexual assault generally, as is everyone uh, living in university residence. Uh, so this is an important risk factor to know about as well. So all of these things contribute to gender dysphoria. This is taken from a big department store, what will not be named, but we see this all the time, right? We have uh, online discrimination. We have the decision that most of us make every day without thinking. Our biggest problem is if it's locked and occupied, but some people, um, the choice of which bathroom to use has bigger implications. And uh, thankfully, we're moving toward uh, changing this at the IWK and NSHA. We actually have signs um, which do have all of these symbols in different ways. Um, and I, I really like this one. And there's another version that says, we don't care, just wash your hands. So vicious flowers and virtuous flowers. This is just a quick way of conceptualizing the things that can uh, lead to gender dysphoria. Um, this is a flower formulation from Psychology Tools and it shows all the different aspects in each petal um, that can feed into uh, a negative uh, dysphoric experience, including social media, news, aggression, 
their own puberty, secondary sex characteristics, voice and shape, uh, an intolerant or uh, barely accepting family, lack of role models in the community, and fewer safe spaces uh, and the need to withdraw at school in order to feel safe. Alternatively, the virtuous flower are ways we can intervene. And the one thing I want to show here is that um, therapy in the bottom petal there is actually only one of 17 things here that we can suggest or we can guide youth toward uh, in order to improve gender dysphoria. And this is from uh, internet, but it does reflect a lot of people's experience. So the, the benefit of having a community or a health professional who can reflect their experience and uh, empathize is huge. So finally, on to the five elements of care, some of which you've already heard about. According to the version six, they break down the clinical work for youth with gender dysphoria and uh, transgender adolescents and adults into five areas. The first is a comprehensive assessment, which is less complicated than you might think. Psychotherapy, which is highly recommended uh, in version seven for adults uh, and uh, older adolescents, but is considered uh, recommended for youth uh, up to uh, and going through puberty in order to support them during transition. Gender expression, which can also be called social transition or transitioning, usually involves um, their own uh, choice of non-medical uh, or surgical ways to express their gender through makeup, clothing, hair, style, gesture, voice, self-identification through pronouns or nicknames or names, and then hormone therapy and surgical therapy. Really important to know that just an empathic assessment begins the treatment. The validation of the um, diagnosis, to, so to speak, can be therapeutic and may allow further exploration and expression of gender and facilitate or enhance a family's acceptance and understanding of their child, which is essential, and I'll show you why. So quickly, basic assessment and follow-up format is not a lot different than we would do for any mental health uh, screener assessment. For those who are used to doing a 50-minute or uh, in some cases with a family present 90-minute assessment, it's very similar. The um, only difference uh, is that we would uh, have some unique assessment content where we would inquire a bit more about sexual history for teens who are seeking transition services for the simple reasons that these can um, affect uh, the impact on the areas of the anatomy that they're using for sexual activity. But we would reserve that for youth who are older, who are already of an age where sexual identity and sexual orientation are being considered naturally. Important to know that when youth is presenting to us, um, they may not always be presenting as their um, known gender in all settings all the time due to safety. Safety is very important. So they might be 18-7 or 24-7, um, but they might also only be 18-5 because they might have um, a safe place at school but not at uh, so we have to just look at that when we're assessing and again recognize that ambivalence looks different than people um, making decisions due to safety or both physical or psychological. So as I've already alluded to, so just a quick reminder, any part of the spectrum of attraction and behavior may exist and we should treat uh, youth with the same respect uh, as we would for any teen presenting with no gender identity concerns. Um, we just um, don't have to be into someone's look or choices in order for it to be valid. So what are the ages of transition? So social expression can um, 
take place at any age. Uh, living as the felt gender, it can involve a gender marker change um, that's usually advised in teen years. Um, we have had a couple of cases in the, you know, uh, over the years, and this is like with over 750 youth treated, where children uh, wanted to uh, have their gender marker changed prior to uh, puberty, and that was me because the uh, identity uh, was persistent, insistent, and consistent, and these two youth also were having considerable distress because their families traveled across the border quite a bit, and it was causing them a great deal of distress when this was questioned, particularly um, border crossings by car can be very stressful. And uh, this fit well with the needs of the family with full permission from their parents. But for the most part, people um, uh, are presenting later and the gender marker change tends to take place uh, later. There are um, criteria for under 16 and then over 16. Essentially, parental permission is only needed for those under 16 in Nova Scotia. And it varies from province to province. Hormonal treatments um, begin not at an age as they used to in older guidelines, 14 or 16. Now um, the guidelines are based on stage of puberty, which is the physical staging process um, of the combination of uh, gonadal development and um, hormonal development that's determined by physical exam by a physician or an endocrinologist. Uh, generally speaking, puberty blockers are used only when um, they, for this purpose, are only used when the youth is at Tanner stage two or above for two reasons. One is that it's important to experience a certain amount of puberty physically for um, bone health and development and um, other sexual uh, organ development for those who are going to need that for surgery later. Uh, but also important psychologically for um, the understanding of the youth about how they um, react to puberty. Puberty, even the very early stages, can be quite distressing, but it is important to know that it doesn't come on like a freight train. So the early signs of puberty um, do not mean that they're going to have a menstrual period um, or a full uh, virilization and masculinization in a matter of weeks or months. It's usually a, a matter of years. And so involving a primary care clinician in order to um, anticipate this for people who present really early with gender dysphoria and a strong cross-gender identification um, is, is all that's needed. But there is a need for the mental health clinician or the primary care clinician to recognize this um, and not to feel they're putting the child on the path by simply letting them know about options. Youth will only choose the options that are meaningful for them. While it's important not to um, put someone's uh, options before them as uh, a must, it's just as important not to give them the options. So surgeries are generally done uh, after age 16 or up. Legally, uh, in Canada, that's uh, pretty typical. However, for funding nationally, uh, and particularly uh, this is province-based, as all healthcare decisions are, uh, the WPATH criteria talk about age 18, and therefore the provincial criteria in Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, and PEI all use that age criterion as well. Masculinizing and feminizing hormones with or without puberty blockers don't have a specific age, but um, it's often uh, seen in the guidelines as 14 and up, 16 and up, or the age of majority. Nova Scotia, like several provinces, does not have an age of majority, and so it's based on capacity to consent. And now is more often 12 and up because it just makes sense. Most people do not have puberty beginning at 14 or 16. In fact, girls are usually through it um, by 14 and 16. And boys are usually either uh, through the, the 
first uh, third or even full half at that point. There are plenty of good reasons for medical transition early. Um, suicidality increases in those wanting to medically transition uh, who are waiting for care. Uh, and many experience uh, physical or sexual uh, intimidation or assault based on um, being identified as trans um, without um, self-identifying that way. And as many as 97% in the TransPulse survey reported avoiding certain public spaces in order to protect themselves. So withholding treatment is not a neutral option. This is a quote directly from the WPATH standards of care, the international care guidelines. Um, so what does a gender affirmative approach look like? Well, we've been talking about that all along. So the child is affirmed in all areas of their life. It's centered around the needs of the child and adjusted accordingly. So we can help families with this. And this is true for youth who are gender variant all the way through to transgender. When I started doing this work, um, it was quite common around um, 10 years ago uh, to see uh, schools um, calling in and saying, is this child trans? Should we get them going on some services? What can we do when the child was merely gender variant in presentation? It's really important to know that happens less now, but it can happen in families, um, social community groups. Sometimes people don't realize the um, course and prevalence of gender variant behavior and they may want to foreclose early. That happens a lot less often now, um, but it's also important for it not to be dismissed as simply gender variant behavior and to wait um, too long. Um, so we can um, let people know that these are options and they're okay in their bodies as they are, but if they want to do some of these things, these are how they're done. Um, one thing I hadn't mentioned yet was vocal training. Um, there are professionals, they're hard to access um, uh, because of wait lists. Uh, speech language pathologists uh, can do this work or people can use videos and apps um, to help with vocal training to pitch their voice higher or lower as they need to. Most of the people already have natural gestures, but some people do rely on drama coaches to help with this. Safety is paramount, so if people are going to do this, they need to have uh, safe places. Most often, um, it's with close friends um, or within the family, and then people move in outward into other areas. This is just one circles of security diagram, but basically think of it as concentric circles or a target where people start from the inner circle and move outward uh, as and when it's safe. Very important to know that people may disclose this um, in places they think they're going to get a good reception and they don't, and vice versa um, in a place uh, where they don't uh, expect to get uh, good results and they do. So very important to know uh, that this can happen. And we have had one youth who was uh, leaving a cake for their family uh, instead of a note. So I just want to return to our case for Cassie for a moment. So when Cassie went to your office, uh, and we'll, call, we'll start talking about it as if it's you treating them, but the clinician um, asked if they could meet together with the grandmother and Cassie, and she agreed. Cassie's grandmother, Mary, state she's just glad that Cassie is meeting with someone who can help her figure everything out. Uh, and her grandmother, Mary, stated, I don't care if she's a boy or a girl, but she needs to go to school more. And she tells you that Cassie's been skipping classes several times a week, either by missing the morning bus or by returning home early. She doesn't try to hide it. She just comes home and seems happy to do the laundry or help out. I don't think she wants to go to school, but that's no way to be. She's smart. Education is important. So in this case, Cassie had anticipated that grandmother might not be a good ally, but in the end, 
this uh, person uh, turned out to be just as much of a rock in this area of their life. It's not always the case. Um, when uh, people are coming out, they do not always have the support system they feel. So we can help them access that if they don't and shore up areas um, uh, that need to be shored up. Gender identity and violence we've already spoken of, but the consequences are high for youth who are feeling isolated or are isolated. Gender transition outcomes are protective if people have access to the services they need. The satisfaction rates um, are as high as 96% um, in older studies. Newer studies are actually showing satisfaction rates as high as 99 and 97% uh, for surgical uh, outcomes. And often um, the 1 or 0.5% of people in different studies who are unsatisfied with surgery um, or up to 4% are actually more concerned about any complications generally rather than overall satisfaction. Overall satisfaction rates with transition are consistently coming back um, as 99.6 or 99.5%. So very high satisfaction and the majority of youth will seek transition services. So helping them access that in a timely way is very important. It's not a uh, you know, the uh, beginning and the end of good mental health. However, mental health supports often needed during transition. This uh, is from the TransPulse project study uh, in 2012. And what it demonstrates um, is that there is a period of risk that spikes in between access uh, to services. So um, the blue is seriously considered suicide and the green is attempted suicide. And as you can see, um, the stage of planning but not begun and the stage of in process is a higher risk stage than um, beginning or the end. And uh, even at the time of completed transition, 23% uh, uh, had seriously considered suicide. Does this mean that it wasn't the right decision? No, but it does mean that minority stress is very difficult. Again, this just demonstrates that completion of medical transition, including hormones and surgery, is the second most important um, factor in preventing uh, poor mental health and suicide risk outcomes according to um, this study by Bauer and all in the, in the public health agency. And the most important for lifetime risk remains absence of family support. It's the strongest factor in ongoing suicide risk in adulthood even after transition. And Lastly, what happens when uh, transgender children are supported in their identity? We have one prospective study, which is um, voluntary by families. This is a study by uh, an adolescent health specialist, um, Dr. Olson and her group uh, in the west coast of the US. And they're following transgender youth of both uh, genders and genderqueer youth who are supported in their identity and comparing them to age match controls and siblings. And this is the first set of data that's published. They're going to carry this study on as long as uh, they can, hoping to get uh, literally a generation of data. And the only difference between the transgender youth and controls uh, and the siblings uh, is a slight increase in anxiety, which is not surprising um, considering uh, that they are navigating all of these uh, aspects of their transition. A lot of people will uh, present to you overwhelmed, uh, not sure where to go, it could be the family, it could be the youth, and they really feel like they can't contain all of this. But with uh, your support, they can go from uh, spilling over to uh, this kind of community tea party. And as simplistic as this may seem, uh, this could be your role. 
So I want to uh, open it up to questions and any comments and uh, go from there. After this, you will find the resources, clinical practice guidelines, recommended books, and also some family websites. Thank you. I thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Zink, for uh, for that fantastic presentation. Uh, so as as you mentioned, we're now going to open up the floor to Q and A. Um, you're all still muted through the presentation, so if you have any questions, just type them in the chat box, and Dr. Zink will read them aloud and provide an answer in return. So Christy. Christy, sorry, has a question. Uh, are there any parent support and information groups? Um, there absolutely are. Along with this, I meant to mention, um, uh, in addition to a PDF of this slides, as they are today that you've seen, you will also get a copy of our uh, team resource list. Uh, there is a parent uh, support group that meets monthly uh, in Lower Sackville for those in HRM area. And there is also now uh, a revived chapter of PFLAG in Halifax uh, run by Cindy Sweeney uh, available for parents. Um, there is a whole list of online supports through um, GenderQuest, Rainbow Health Ontario. There is a Facebook page and community um, for Canadian parents of trans and gender diverse youth. Um, there are also uh, information uh, sessions uh, through GenderQuest uh, in San Francisco online. So the, and they include uh, chat rooms for youth, grandparents, parents, uh, and they also have subtopics that are moderated by um, professionals. So a great deal of things uh, that are available to now to give to families. And these will be on the resource list that you'll get by email. So um, Alexa Bagnell asked, how do you phrase your work? I think it, it phrase or phase, I'm not sure. When a youth you're following transitions and is not ready to tell family, but part of your session is with parents, particularly if they're using a new pronoun and name. Uh, so this would vary from youth to youth, but generally this is not uncommon um, where youth will want to um, share this identity with families. Usually we um, do the assessment together and part of the assessment with families is assessing um, their uh, understanding and attitudes towards gender expression in generally and then also uh, in their child. Um, it's important to know that families can sometimes have a very strong uh, negative reaction for any variety of reasons. They can be concerned for the safety of their child, they can just not understand, uh, and they can be also fearful uh, about medical or surgical transition. It's really important to respect where they're at. It's really common for parents to be on different pages. So what we usually do is start with that exploration um, and then in the assessment share um, the diagnosis of gender dysphoria if it's present and, um, and go from there. Uh, some youth want to experiment with name and pronouns with their friend group and if the parents are uh, not feeling ready, we can uh, help them uh, explore that in a safe way. Um, bearing in mind the important role of families, we would try and include families wherever possible. It's not uh, unheard of for youth to not want their parents to initially be part of treatment and then eventually do allow it. Um, we try not to expose them to negatively rejecting parents consistently and, and don't force it, but generally speaking, um, parents do come to understand this with support. And I can give, if there's a specific um, example of this you'd like, I can uh, speak to that if you want any advice on that. Oh, and Lana Taylor has just mentioned uh, that in Truro there are groups that meet out of the Levels Game Loft. Um, there's a chapter of the Youth Project in Cape Breton. 
um, that is also, I think, offering some uh, parent support. Oh, great. And Kim Collette just asked a question about uh, a little bit about, could I speak a little bit about rapid onset gender dysphoria? So for those who haven't uh, followed follow this online, rapid onset gender dysphoria, or ROGD is how it's often um, abbreviated, is a phenomenon that's gaining a lot of momentum online, but it's really important to know that um, this is really a description of gender dysphoria from the perspective of a parent who wasn't aware of their child's gender identity. Um, this blew up into a controversy last summer because there was publishing paper uh, named Lisa Littman whose paper was removed from PLOS One after people um, were concerned about the discussion portion of her findings. It was then uh, edited, changed, and then republished by PLOS One reach recently. But it became a controversy because parents who are concerned and feeling left out from their child's treatment um, often feel that this is a rapid onset phenomenon that is not perhaps genuine. Uh, it's really important to know that the WPATH has made a statement on this and that it's not recognized as a separate clinical entity. It's simply a description of a parent experience. Um, uh, I mentioned briefly that youth can come in before coming out. Um, yes, uh, someone who identifies as a trans boy later, um, such as Cassie, can have a period of extreme um, femininity in terms of presentation. Uh, it is not unusual sometimes for youth to present. Some of the things that parents are concerned about include things like um, that youth are spending time online in chat rooms or going to uh, websites that are talking about gender dysphoria and are being influenced. In the ROGD um, support groups for parents, this is often viewed as a sign of pathology, but I try and use the thought experiment for parents um, with this concern and say if your child was going to skateboarding websites and watching YouTube videos of skateboard tricks, what would that tell you? And they'd say, well, that would tell me that they are really interested in skateboarding. And so I just allow them to think about the fact that people seek out online what they're interested in, not um, the other way out. All right, so we have a question from Jen Richards. How do you have conversations with families who seem to think if there's any remaining anxiety or depression even after their child come up, comes out, that this is an indicator that the child is not really trans? So um, what I usually do is I share, again, the information that I showed on the slides, and, and um, we can go into that in more detail later, but really um, let them know that um, either they can have, just like everybody else, uh, genetic or um, you know, genetic and temperament and genetic and environmentally based anxiety or depression, that those are both common mental health disorders, so they could have that. However, um, minority stress is often a big factor in perpetuating anxiety and depression, so we kind of can look at that together about how they can support their child.